Welcome to the Life's Hard Succeed Anyway podcast, where you will hear transformational stories, positive encouragement, and practical strategies to help you grow your mindset, reach your potential, live your dreams, and experience a purpose-driven, impact-filled life. Here's your host, Alan Blaine. All right, this is Alan Blaine, and I am fired up today to get to interview our special guest, a good friend, Matt Baudreau. As a keynote speaker, consultant, and coach to organizations around the world, Matt Baudreau, his clients have ranged from the likes of Wells Fargo, Honeywell, Lockheed Martin, to American Eagle, Cedar sinai and the United States Air Force, quite a diverse group there. Matt has a reputation as a provocative thought leader in educational and personal development practices, which is another reason I'm super excited about this conversation here today. He's a two-time featured TEDx speaker, and he was named Corporate Trainer of the Year at Stanford University, having spoken to over a quarter million people across the world. In 2017, Matt founded Acton Academy Placer Schools, schools that utilize the Socratic method, which I'm looking forward to getting a little more into that as well, with an emphasis on self-direction and cultivating confident, independent young people with a strong sense of character and personal responsibility. He has since helped to open multiple campuses around the world, pulling from his expertise in the Acton model. In January 2021, Matt co-founded Apogee Strong with Tim Kennedy a mentorship program designed for young men from ages 12 to 22 to take on challenges presented by men who have come before them in order to learn to lead. It is a rite of passage through mentorship action and self-discovery so that young men can become true leaders. This has blossomed into a mission to bring back classic masculinity in the home and it's fueled the launch of the Apogee Strong Dads program just this year in 2023. His podcast, The Essential 11, is also geared towards emerging leaders, garnering advice from the world's leaders in business, sports, music, and entertainment. Last but not least, Matt is the founder of Apogee Strong Foundation, which is a 501c3 that provides scholarships for school, experience, camp, and leadership opportunities for young men around the world. Matt, welcome to the Life's Hard Succeed Anyway podcast, brother. Are you ready for this? What an honor, man. Truly, absolutely. I had it on my calendar today that's just just big letters that just said Alan. That's all it is. That's that's the calendar today. So yeah, I'm excited, man, for sure. Hey, I love it. I love it. Well, uh, man, I've, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. You know, I didn't even know how I started following you, Matt, a while back. And I think it was when you were being interviewed by Elizabeth Hesselbeck. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, this guy is is sharp. He's articulate. And we're kind of syncing together in our thought processes here. I got to see what else he has to say. So I'm so thankful that uh, our mutual friend introduced us not that long ago. And uh, you were willing to come on the show and share some of your insights with our listeners here tonight. Awesome, man. No, honor is mine. Yeah, Elizabeth is great. And, and you know, our mutual friend, Larry who gave that introduction, you know, anytime we got good human beings like that, that are like, Hey, you got to get to know this other good human being over there. There's no downside to that. So no honor is truly my own. Absolutely. Well, I've shared just a brief intro. I know there's a lot more that could have been said about you for our listeners, but if you could spend a couple minutes, just giving us that 30,000 foot view of kind of who is Matt Boudreau and how, how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, I'll, I'll give that 30,000 foot view and then, you know, you can ask me to elaborate anywhere that you feel like is relevant. But I always tell people I'm a, a career educator. And people hear that and they, they automatically think school, but I'm very quick to point out that I very much believe education and school are not the same thing. And in fact, I believe they're often diametrically opposed. 
so when I say a career educator, I, you know, I think God has put me on this earth with a mission of getting people to think and getting people back, you know, as close to factory settings as humanly possible. And, you know, I've found in working with families all over the world for a long time now, coming up on a couple of decades, that a lot of my mission for the young heroes that I get to work with is trying to preserve those factory settings as much as possible. And then for the older heroes, for the adults, it's it's about getting back to those factory settings. And so a lot of my work centers around that. And I tell people that this started when I was four, when I started kindergarten and sat down and was put in a the red group when we were doing a reading exercise. And I remember looking around the room going, okay, wait a second. So that group over there, that's who needs the most help. This group over here, they think needs a little bit less than that group. This group needs a little bit less. And this is the group that they think are the strongest readers. Interesting. Okay, so there's some sort of game going on here. I very clearly remember having that thought as a four-year-old in, in my first year in kindergarten and, and just going, okay. Um, and, and that's when I realized, I mean, I could see patterns and I could see patterns of how things were going to play out. And that's one of the skills, you know, I'm bad at almost everything, but that's one of the skills that God gave me that has taken me to where I am now. And I understood the game of school. I did very well at the game of school, but I wasn't educated. So I just came up doing what everybody else did. I got good grades and but I went to school for girls in sports and then, you know, got you graduate. And it's like, well, I guess everybody's supposed to go to college. So that's what I'll do. I'll go to college. And I got my straight A's all through college, but I got better at girls and I got better at sports and which put me in a spot of going, man, now I got to figure stuff out. So uh, I had a couple odd jobs, ultimately landed at Stanford University where I really started to see the game from the inside out. So they went from working at Stanford to being a public school teacher, public school administrator, private school teacher, private school administrator, uh, which is why I left all of those to ultimately start schools that I wanted my own kids to go to. Uh, and the speaking career happened to take off simultaneously with launching all of these campuses. So that's a whole lot right there in, in, in a little bit of time. Yes, that is a whole lot. Got, I just wrote down about eight questions just from what you just shared. Sure. So I appreciate that. That's awesome. Before I jump into those questions, though, tell us about where you're at now. What, how about your family, your children, number of children? What are you doing for education for them? Yeah, man. So I've got the uh, the most amazing. Everybody says this, but I'm the only one that's right. I have the most amazing <laughs> wife and children on you know on the planet, man. I've been blessed with the most beautiful bride. She and I have been together for 18 years, coming up on our 15th anniversary. Congratulations! Year. Uh, thank you, sir. And we have. Three children. Uh, my daughters are 12 and 10, and my young man is seven. We, as of 18 months ago, left California, where my wife and I are both born and raised. Left California, we bought a farm in the mountains of North Carolina near Asheville. So we've been running this farm here for now for the last 18 months, along with all the other businesses that I run and operate. And our young heroes are, are self-directing their entire education. So we, we home educate. They've never been to a school that I did not create. You know, the only school they ever went to in California was one that I built for them and everybody else that I built it for. But the primary motivator was those three. So they'd only ever been there. They've become extraordinarily driven and self-directed, very purpose-driven young people. And so it's not hard because they're helping perpetuate their own education here on the farm as well. I love it. Now, you mentioned in college, it was all about girls in sports back then, right? Sure. Girls in sports. Right. And you just happened to get straight A's. I mean, you're not an overachiever or anything, I'm, I'm sure. So you played sports in college as well? 
So a good question. So sports and girls were always a thing. The sports that I played were never college sports. So I grew up as a as a fighter. So I I played high school basketball, high school football. I was a mediocre football player. I was a very good high school basketball player. We were actually a very good team. And even as a five nine white guy, I could dunk and I could play ball. Um, so I was you know I was decent. And we and we got second in the state of California my senior year for Division two. So we were actually a really really good team. But my primary sport was always physical combat. So I grew up kickboxing. And that's what I had done all through high school. So in college, I, I stayed competitive there and, and kickbox and, and ultimately got into this mixed martial arts yeah. thing that was kind of taken off at the time and, and had nine fights in the cage as well. So those were always the primary sports for me um, that I was focusing on. Yeah. And the straight A's thing was just a product of me knowing the game of school. I differentiate that from being educated. I didn't have to put effort in. I knew how to do it. So I didn't have to put effort. It was effortless A's that got me no education right right and but that's what i was doing while i was there and, and i did i was always a hard worker to my credit i worked you know three jobs while i was in college as well to put myself through yeah so. well i find that interesting too because i could have had straight a's in high school and i'm sure i probably could have had straight a's in the, the, the two years of college before i dropped out but i didn't care and i didn't try what do you say to somebody who like you know they think school's hard what would you say to them well it can be hard I think the question that I would want people to ask is what's the purpose of playing that game in general? Yeah. So, you know, like I said, I was a mediocre football player. I was a good basketball player. I was a good fighter. I've never played soccer. I don't have any interest in playing soccer. I don't really understand the rule. I understand the very basics of soccer. I am very confident in saying that if I stepped out on a field with a bunch of 10, 11, and 12-year-olds had been playing stuff. They would just destroy me. They would dominate me, right? I've never played that game. So the question for me is, do I care? Right. Like, doesn't matter, right? And I'm not going to play soccer with the hopes of becoming a good basketball player, right? I'm going to play basketball if I want to be a good basketball player. I'm not going to play soccer with the hopes of becoming a good fighter. I'm going to fight if I want to fight, right? So the thing that gets me about school is that we've equated it in our society to, okay, if you get good at the school game, well, then you're good at the life game. Those are not the same games. They're not the same games in the least. Good at school, if that doesn't make you inherently good at life, well, then what are we talking? So you can be bad at school and still be good at life, right. right? So the question is, do you need to be good at it in the first place or should you just spend your time playing a different game? That's always my thing. So I don't worry about somebody being good at school, not good at school. If school is something you want to be good at, great. Then figure out why and, and you can go be good at that. But it's not something that's a prerequisite for being good at life ever. And I love that you're just getting people to think it's so easy just to follow along when you see the masses doing what the masses are doing to not question it. That's right. I guess if I just had to summarize the one thing that I love about what you're doing in your message is getting people to think, why are you doing what you're doing? I mean, we've been having these conversations for years with our children now that the fourth, fifth and sixth children are at that 19, 18, 16 age, you know, college kind of age. It's like even that conversation, like college or no college. Well, why college? And not just because everybody else around you is doing it, not just because society says it's a thing. You need to know why you're doing what you're doing. And that applies to everything in life, not just education. But I didn't finish one of my thoughts earlier is I said I could have got straight A's. There's no question. I mean, I think I graduated high school with a 3.7 or 8 because I, I didn't even try. So I did well in high school is my point. The crazy part is, though, 
I, you know, will see some of the stuff in years past that someone will ask me like, how do you do this? Or how do you do that stuff I used to be able to do in high school? It's like, I don't know how to do that anymore. Why would I? Because it never has been used, you know, and the things that I do use every day, finances, communication, mindset, health, all the things that really matter were never taught. And again, that's such a logical concept in any other avenue. It would be such a logical thing for us to go, okay, you want to be good at this, then you actually spend your time doing it. I want to be good at fixing a car. Cool. So what should I do? I don't know. Go mow the lawn. This isn't Karate Kid, right? Like it's not Karate Kid where it's like you wax on, you wax off, and now you can fight. That's not real. You practice the thing you want to be good at. And so it should, it's a very logical thing for everything else, but because it is so ingrained in the fabric of our society of what we do, because we have been fooled into religiously believing that schooling equates to education and everybody else around us is doing it, we won't question it. It's a very uncomfortable thing to question. And what's uncomfortable for most people, I truly believe, because I've at this point walked thousands and thousands of humans through logically taking a look at this, and it's never the logical pursuit that is a struggle for people. It's the emotional attachment to the religion of school. It's the emotional attachment to what happens if I actually start to pull that string and question it a little bit? Who's going to be mad at me? Right. Are my parents going to be upset at me? And they're going to say, I'm not a good parent. What about my neighbors? What about my friends? They're going to say, you're going to homeschool your kids. Oh, they're going to be weird, right? You start to pull at that string and it's like, oh, okay, here's all the fears and insecurities that I have. That usually have nothing to do with it anyways, but that's what I'm not willing to tackle. Most people don't want to ask those questions because they're not brave enough to see where the answers are if they ask the questions. Yeah, that's a great point. And what's interesting is just a quick story of our experience. When my wife, Nicole, wanted to homeschool our children when our first one was four or five or whatever well, since birth. I was the one that was against it. You know, I, I say I have a PhD. It's a, not the kind of PhD you might have, but it, mine's a public high school diploma. And uh, I said, you know, I'm so concerned that our kids aren't going to be socialized if you if we go this route. And one of the things Nicole said was she goes, hey, what about that family and that family? A couple families, they were actually cousins of mine that had been homeschooled and they were grown. They were 18, 20, 22, 25 years old. Do you feel like they're socialized, those kids or now adults? I'm like, they're the most socialized people I know. I guess that kind of destroyed that argument, but she helped me decide to start homeschooling back 23 years ago, I guess it's been now. So good for her for bringing that up and good for you for actually just wrestling with the thought too, because most people will just dismiss it at its face, right? right? So when people, that's, that's an argument that I hear all the time. And so I ask them first to define what socialized means, right? right? Like Socrates, the beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms. And so I always ask, okay, well define what socialized means then. What does that mean to you to be socialized? And we'll get whatever their, you know, their general definition is. And Ultimately, they just want somebody that's competent, right? I mean, that's really what it boils down to. They want somebody that's competent, that, that understands how to be productive, is relatively joyful, can get along with other people, can communicate. You know, it usually ends up being the same general things. And then I'll ask them, okay, cool, man. So when you went to school, when you went to public high school or your conveyor belt model school, whatever that looked like, were there kids that were there that were really awkward and, and didn't communicate well and they weren't happy? And they're, well, yeah, of course. Hmm. So school wasn't the thing that socialized them then, right? It had nothing to do with it. They will say, well, if you homeschool your kids, aren't they going to be weird? Maybe if you are, it has much more to do with the parents than it does any other things, right? So let's actually talk about what that environment 
looks like? How do humans actually grow, learn to do all of these meta skills? And you realize school, if anything, is only going to maybe be a distraction because you're actually going to show them a whole lot of examples of how not to be, but that's going to be a really big influence on it. So there's a lot of ways to deconstruct that argument. Yeah. And I love, even when I was asking you the question, the first time we talked a while back, just trying to get your perspective, kind of asking you some general questions. I said, so in your programs, do you teach the basic skills of reading, writing, and arithmetic, you know, stuff school would teach? And I loved your answer. In fact, I'll just let you answer it because I don't want to butcher it, but I I loved what you said to that. And I fully agree. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure what I said when you and I spoke, but it was probably something along the lines of the fact that we don't have to teach them a whole lot of things that are inherent in our design as it is, right? So do we learn the reading, writing, arithmetic? Yeah. Everybody is going to learn the reading, writing, and arithmetic, but they're going to learn what matters. And so what I ask a lot of people is, do your kids speak Chinese? And I'm like, no, my kids don't speak Chinese. I'm like, oh, what do they speak? They speak English. Oh, cool. What school did you send them to to learn to speak English? I didn't send them anywhere. Oh, why do they speak English? Because we did, and they were just around us, right? It's like, yep, that's it. A lot of times we'll follow and go, where did you send them to learn how to walk? And they'll be like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, where did you send them? We didn't send them anywhere. They just, exactly, they just saw you walking they decided they wanted to walk it was a natural progression they just started going they failed over and over again and then you as the parent were like yes keep going because you understood that on the other side of that failure was going to be success right so what if all of a sudden you take that to something else and you go yeah man um we're reading in the house and here's the math that matters and here's how we write because we write for this specific purpose and um what if you just you know continue to do that and show them that and expose them to that guess what they're ultimately going to end up doing that right so that's how it gets knocked out in a real sense in a real world application i love it jumping back to you matt by the way, five nine and Kadunk, that's some leaps, my brother. That's impressive. I mean it's not there anymore, but it was there. I was pretty impressed with myself that at five ten I could dunk a volleyball, but I was not five nine and I could never dunk a basketball. So I'm really impressed. Really impressed. But anyway, no, tell me about that. You said you came out of college, Stanford University grad. You turned down a job at the White House or you did have your first job at the White House. What was that all about? I turned down a job at the White House. So my senior year of college started in 2001, fall of 2001, and graduation was 2002. So if anybody remembers the fall of 2001, right, September 11th takes place. So I had just started my final year of college when that took place. And so as that happened, I had a whole lot of friends who were like, okay, well, I, it looks like I'm going to go to the military. I'm going to go to because I want to go fight back. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't necessarily want to do the military, but man, Maybe this is giving me a direction because if I'm honest, I don't know what the heck I'm going to do. Like I was studying sport. I studied kinesiology. That's my, I was getting my degree in kinesiology because I'm like, I like sports, right? But I don't have any real desire to do anything with that. I don't know what I want to do. So I looked and went, okay, well, I don't want to go to the military. What can I maybe do that's a version of serving and quote unquote fighting back, right? Is this, is this young buck? And Believe it or not, I saw this movie with Wesley Snipes called Murder at 1600. And I watched that and I went, oh, dude, I could be a Secret Service agent. What if I explore that? I wonder how do that even happens? Like, how do you get that job? So I actually filled out the application for the United States Secret Service. 
And to my surprise, they got back to me and they're like, all right, let's start the process. And I'm like, holy. So I started applying there. So my entire senior year, I was going through the background process of the United States Secret Service. I was offered the job in March of 2002. They said, all you got to do is graduate. I have a four-year degree. So you're going to graduate in May and then you're good to go. You're going to move to DC, be part of the uniform division. And we'll go do all the schooling and all that kind of stuff. So I accepted it in March. And then in April, I had a conversation with a current at that time, I believe he's retired now, but Secret Service agent who was like, hey, let's chat. Here's why you need to say no. And so we had a, a very lengthy conversation. I'm very grateful for that conversation. But he was like, yep, you're not going to do this. So I turned it down um, at that point and said, OK, not going to do it. So then I graduated in May and went, cool. Now what? Now what? Yep, exactly. So that's, you know, I was stuck in the now what at that point, because I had my straight A's and I had my degree and I had no real education because, again, I was good at sports and girls. Yeah. So got to figure out what's happening. So. So then what? You end up teaching at Stanford. Is that the next step you took or how'd that all play out? No, I, I literally, because I was still working three jobs at that time and I was working at a bar. I was managing an apartment complex and I was working part-time for a bank. I and mean, that's how I was putting myself through school throughout that entire time. So that's all I had. So in my head, I'm like, okay, I need something that at least is stable and seems like there's some upward trajectory, but I literally have no idea where to go. So a few days after I graduated, I was with a friend in a, and this is hilarious, but I was with a friend in a mall and somebody comes up to me and is like, hey, you ever thought about working at Abercrombie and Fitch. And I was like, nope, sure haven't. And they're like, well, do you have a degree? I'm like, just got it. Like two days ago, just got it. And they're like, cool. Um, then you could be a manager. And I'm like, oh, manager full time and benefits. They're like, yep. I'm like, cool, man. Sign me up. Here we go. So that was my first job out of college was managing Abercrombie and Fitch stores. And I don't regret that in the least, partially because that is where I met the woman that I am married to now. So I ended up working for Abercrombie and Fitch and so doing the best that I could while I was there, you know, one of the biggest takeaways, even though I knew that wasn't going to be a career thing for me, I just wanted to be the best. I had no thought that I was going to go far up into the, you know, stay in retail or go zero desire ever. But I did have a desire to at least be the best possible version of myself while I was there. And so I had no idea one day that I was helping a gentleman that I was helping, I was just trying to do my best. And when it got done, he's like, Hey, by the way, I really like the way you're interacting. And it looks like I've been kind of watching. I've been in here before. It looks like you, are you the manager of this? I said, yeah, I'm the manager of the store. He's like, cool. He's like, I like the vibe in here. I think you need to come work for me. And I said, okay, well, who are you? Like, what do you do? He says, well, my name's Mark Mastroff. I've started a company called 24 hour fitness. And I think I need you to come work at one of my flagship stores. So I ended up working for the founder of 24 hour fitness. I ended up going over to manage the flagship store in the Bay area for 24 hour fitness. Wow. So did that for a couple of years and it was in the process of running that again, trying to be the best possible version, thinking there may be some career mobility in this organization that I had another thing where somebody else that I had worked with, you know, forever for two years or served who was a member there who said, ah, you don't want to stay here. I want you to come work for me. We need to have you at Stanford University. And so I ended up going over to Stanford after that. And what did you do at Stanford? I ended up being a corporate trainer. I was working for the controller's office, which was great because the controller's office, that's obviously where all the money flows through. So I worked with everybody. That means I worked with the professors. I worked with the parents, I worked with the staff, I worked with the students, I worked with the athletes, I worked with the donors, I got to work with everybody because money is the bloodline for the university. Yeah. 
so in the process of that, I actually helped create the corporate training program for the controller's office at Stanford University. And so that's wow. what I spent the majority of my time doing, which was great because it showed me that I enjoyed being in front of people. It showed me I enjoyed, you know, being on stage, having a bit of ownership. It kind of gave me the first flavor of, of entrepreneurship from an entrepreneur sort of standpoint. And I started building a network really, really quickly as well because Stanford gets a whole lot of really, really powerful and influential people there. Yeah. I was just going to jump to that point as I'm hearing you tell your story. I'm hearing, oh, did you say you spent a year or two at Amber Crombie, maybe a couple years there, a couple years at 24-Hour Fitness, but I'm seeing diligence, giving your all to where you're at, what you're doing, giving your all. And obviously network, it's you're meeting people, people are noticing your diligence, it's connections. And like you said, then you get to Stanford and you're in the midst of the greatest connections of all time there for you probably. For better or for worse, there is an element of, you know, the word that I use and it's got whatever connotation it's got, but again, definition of terms, right? So the way I define it for myself is I have an obsessive personality and I don't mean that in a way that I don't have mental peace because I feel like I have probably more mental peace than any other human I know. Truly, I'm at peace, but I also believe very much that if I'm going to do something, I want to optimize every single bit of it. And I'm going to get as close as I can to that, right? So I'm going to try to optimize the workspace to where I am the best possible version of myself in that specific role. I'm going to optimize my relationships to the best of my ability. I'm going to optimize my health to the best of my ability. I want to optimize my relationship with God, my finance. What are the best practices out there and how can I jump on board and make sure that I'm doing that, right? And so that's served me extraordinarily well. I love it. Hey, tell us now, how do you jump from that position at Stanford to speaking for, I guess that would be Amber Crabby's competitor. I don't know if you're consulting or speaking or what, but, but the likes of American Eagle and, and what was it? Wells Fargo and Honeywell and getting paid per hour, maybe what a lot of people make in a year during that season where you're, you know, speaking 60, 70 times a year at those kind of rates. Like, how do you, do you make the leap to that? How did that play out? Yeah. So it was, you know, really was because I had naively decided I would go help people through being a public school teacher, meaning I'd go buck the system. I saw a lot of young people at Stanford and I saw a game being played at Stanford that was intentionally working a different way than we are told it works. And so naively, again, I'm going to go fix it, right? I'm going to go be the public school teacher that fixes everything. So I was the public school teacher who then naively was like, mm, okay, well, I can't fix it here. I'll be the administrator because that's where I'm going to fix it, right? So I had gone through that whole series. And so what I ultimately saw was this game of schooling. And I saw how it was impacting our young people and what was going on. And I started speaking out about that. And I started speaking predominantly at education conferences and really just throwing my name out there to local conferences, local universities going, hey, if you guys are ever doing anything, man, I'd love to get up and just run my mouth about things that are going on. Right. And so I had spoken and people liked what I had to say. And I had a knack for being effective from the stage, not just in entertaining people, but getting people to think and more importantly, getting people to move. There's a different level of, I believe, speaking. And again, yeah. I say this knowing that I am very, very bad at almost everything on this planet, but God has gifted me with that. So I am one of the better speakers, I believe, that I know of. And from a stage, I can get people to move and take action. And so in doing that, you know, I was asked to give a, a TEDx by a client that I ended up speaking to. And, and I go back, that TEDx, I can't even watch anymore. I just, I look at that, and go, man, that's amateur hour. Like I can't, but what happened was there was a research firm that saw that 
and went, hey, like your vibe, we've got a team of PhDs and all they're doing is studying different generations and generational trends and how those play out in various industries. Would you come take a look at our research? If you like our research, we'd love to partner with you and, and we have more business than we can handle. We can help you to like break into certain industries and then it'll be kind of be up to you. And if you do a good job, I'm sure you'll get repeat business. And you know, what do you think? And so I flew out to Texas, looked at their research and went, man, this is great stuff, man. And so started speaking to a couple of smaller organizations and associations. And, you know, next thing I know, every time I gave a talk, I was getting, you know, five, 10 referrals to go to other organizations. And it literally just took off from there. I love it. I love it, Matt. What would you say? I mean, we've got a lot of people that listen to this podcast. They want to live a successful life, many of which are living successful lives. But like you and I want to keep leveling up our game in different areas of our life, our health, our relationships. We want to be relationship rich. We want to be financially free and, and time free and live an impactful life. Success is, as I would define it, all these things combined. What would you say has been a key, one of the keys to your success? You've had a lot of it. Yeah. Being brave enough to ask the questions, right? Being brave enough to be curious. Curiosity is something that gets killed. It gets killed in school. It gets killed in culture. Because again, like the scary boogeyman is on the other side of asking those questions. Because if you're curious and you ask the question, what if that answer is something that is actually going to make you a pariah or it's going to make you somebody that's not following the status quo? But if you can get around that and be brave enough to continue to be curious, then I think a lot of things unlock at that point. You know, when we're young, we grow up, we want to be the hero, right, of the story. We want to go conquer big things. We have that. And then we get older and we start to settle for just not being the villain. Right. We're no longer going after the hero, you know, role anymore. And to me, playing not to lose is, is definitely not the same thing as playing to win. And so, you know, maintain that curiosity, be brave enough to ask those questions and play to win. I love it. Again, you've had a ton of success in your early 40s, mid 40s, whatever you are today, you know, with a lot of life left ahead of you, but you've lived long enough to, I imagine, have a challenge or two or three or four or five along the way. I think a lot of times some people, especially early on in their life, think that maybe, you know, they've got more challenges than other people that have had a greater level of success and these things maybe hold them back. You know, if only I didn't have this or if only I didn't have to deal with this, that kind of limiting mindset. I asked this question for that reason and the benefit of our, our listeners, but what's one of the bigger challenges you've had to face in your lifetime to date? Gosh, man. I mean, the more success you have, the bigger the challenges are, right? It's not the challenges don't go away. The right. challenges get bigger and they look different. And, you know, so it, it's been a series. I, I actually posted something not too long ago about the farm that we have. And somebody says, oh, it must be nice, right? It must be nice that you got a farm. It must be nice that you've got kids that are, well, you know, you can home educate and homeschool and all this and it is nice. Yeah. And hey, also, this was the vision that I had when I lived in a 1982 Toyota Corolla with sheepskin seats. And that's where I was sleeping Yeah, when I was in college for part of the time where I actually didn't have enough to pay rent on anything. And I was living in a car. Right. So it is nice because I remember that it is nice because I remember giving up my six figure job to make the first year as a private school teacher, thirty one thousand wow. dollars that year living in California with a brand new wife and a brand new baby so that we could sacrifice because we wanted my wife to be able to stay home with our daughter. Yeah. So that was a struggle. So yes, this is nice. Yes. I worked seven days a week for seven years straight while I was traveling the world to do the speaking 
And then when I was back home, I was building school campuses and building communities around this. I went seven years in a row without a single day off. So when people give you that, yeah, well, it must be nice. It is nice. But it was also very, very strategic that I was going to push through each and every one of these hardships. And then I jumped into a business, you know, talking about building schools, right? I jumped into a business that I'm essentially going against the biggest religion in our country. I'm continuously talking with people, talking people off a ledge, right, about their religious attachment to what school looks like for their young people. So the challenges don't go away. They just change and you get used to it and you get better at dealing with them. And you ultimately can get to a point where you get to choose a little bit, you know, some of the challenges that you're going to face. So understand that they're not going away and decide how you're going to proceed with that. Yeah, I was just thinking when you were saying that the the sacrifices that you've made, the six figures to this $31,000 a year salary for the reasons you made them, your own personal reasons that you made them because you saw the benefit in doing so. It's like everything in life is hard. You know, it's so easy for any of us. I'll say people, but I mean, any of us could fall into it going, hey, whatever. Just like you said, it must be nice having the farm. It must be nice having the income you have. It must be nice being able to be the speaker that you are, the communicator that you are. Hey, none of that stuff is easy to get there. Right. And still isn't easy to keep growing and leveling it up. So, but I love to remind myself and people, we all choose our heart. You know, no, it's not easy to be financially free, but it's not easy to be broke. You know, it's hard to be fit and healthy, but it's hard to be out of shape and overweight. Like you get to choose. I mean, we get to choose what we're going to do seven days a week though. You said seven days a week you were working for how long? Oh, it was seven days a week for about seven years. Okay. Now I've got to ask this. So two questions there, because there's so much talk about work-life balance. Okay. I've said for a while now that life goes in seasons, right? I mean, your sleep is not balanced when you have a newborn baby. Your your, your life is not balanced when you're starting a new business up. It's just, it's not reality, right? So the two questions for you and just to get your insight on that is how did you do that? And I assume you, yeah, you were married with at least one of your children during those seven years and balance all that is one part. And just kind of your overall thoughts on work-life balance. Yeah, I don't love the concept. Again, definition of terms, right? So most people hear life balance and they think equal amount of work, equal amount of life. Right, right. Work-life integration is what you're talking about, right? We want to, it's where I am now. Like I work all the time, but I love it. And it's what I want to do. And I decide who I do it with, when I do it, and what the purpose is and what the mission is, right? Like that's it. Because the balance piece is up here. Right. In between the ears. That's it. So when I was working seven days, there was a mission there. There was a purpose there. And so the only thing I needed to make sure of during that time where that mission and that purpose were taken off, where we knew what we were shooting for, I needed to make sure that my wife was there with me because we were raising a family at that point. And it was extraordinarily unbalanced. I was 60, 70 keynotes a year and I lived in California and four or five of those would be in California. The rest of those were somewhere else. They were in another state. They were in another country. I was always on a plane. I was always in a different time zone. Half the time, I truly did not know. I would wake up in a hotel room and not remember where I was. You know, I'd talk to somebody would call me. My mom would call me. I'm just like, where are you right now? I'm like, I don't remember. I'd go to hotels and they're like, oh, welcome back. I'm like, cool. Sounds good. I believe you because I they all look the same at this point. Right. But there was a mission there. And as soon as I was home, well, I was building schools i was building school communities i was like 
that was not an easy thing to get off the ground, but then it did take off and I had to not just build one, I had to build multiple because the mission was being fulfilled. The purpose was being served. Like it, so there wasn't going to be any stop. And we knew that there was an end game. So I just needed to make sure that I had my wife with me, that we were able to connect. Maybe if we could only connect a little each day, we just had to make sure that time counted. But balance was up here. It was, was it crazy busy? Beyond busy. Yeah. But I never lost the peace in between the ears because we knew exactly what we were doing and why we were doing it. I love it. I love it, Matt. When you look back on past challenges, you know, there's more ahead. That's life. But when you look back on them, how do you view them now? Just in general, in the context of your impact, the context of your growth? Yeah. If I'm honest, I do a bad job of looking back on those things. And maybe it served me well to not do that. But I, I don't do that too much because I'm very grateful for I'm grateful for the good things. I'm grateful for the bad things. I have gratitude for all those experiences because experience is what education actually is, right? It's education through those experiences. But, you know, I had a conversation with a gentleman named Patrick Bet David. Some of the listeners may know who that is. And he and I were talking and he says, man, you know, if you're that guy who looks back at high school and goes, man, those are the greatest years of my life. He goes, you suck at life. You lost at life, right? And I tend to look back at almost everything that way. I'm very thankful for the opportunities that I've had or created, been blessed with, all of the above. I'm very grateful for those. It is cool to look back and go, how many people have spoken on TEDx stages, been in you know a bunch of cage fights, built multi-million dollar businesses, had the relationship that I like. That's Hey man, that's yeah. Help produce a movie. Help like cool, sweet. That's awesome. Also, hey, today is what today is. And if I don't go forward and help another human being today and move the needle forward today, who cares? I'll never be the guy that looks back and goes, oh, but look what I did and look what I. No man, what am I doing right now? Yeah, I love it. Now you've got a lot of wisdom and you've learned a lot along the way. But what if you could go back in time and give your high school self? maybe, or college age self, one piece of advice, what would that be? Yeah, give up the distractions. The distractions elongated getting to the good stuff, right? The distractions for me were girls. And luckily that was the only vice I had. I've never had a drink of alcohol. That was never a thing. I've never been a big video game guy. That's not a thing. But the reason I'm so big on that distraction is because I see that be a, a crutch for too many human beings. You know, for a lot of our young men, we are distracting them with video games. For a lot of our young heroes are distracting them with whatever, the, the social media, this and the trends, this, and I'm not vilifying any of those things. I'm just saying, be aware that those can be distractions, you know, and for me, I know if that hadn't been such a distraction, if I had focused earlier, then, you know, that would have been a good thing. Again, I don't look back with any kind of regrets, but it would have been the distractions to, to get rid of those earlier. Good stuff. How about just a daily, I assume daily, but a, a routine habit? What is one habit that our listeners can learn from maybe possibly that's helped you live a successful life? The biggest habit that I can think of that I'll, that I'll dive into every morning is I'll take a look at something and I'll kind of question my own beliefs around something. I, I do kind of just a little exercise where I just go, okay, what am I planning on? What am I thinking about this particular thing coming up? And where am I maybe wrong? And this is an exercise we bring our men through from a spiritual standpoint too, but I ask everybody to steel man their ideas. We hear of straw man, like as a logical fallacy, we don't talk about steel man enough. And steel man is really trying to prove somebody else right, trying to prove yourself wrong. 
so I try to, you know, in the morning, go, okay, what's going on? What's going ahead? What do I have project wise ahead of me? What am I believing about that project right now? Well, I'm believing that, you know, this person right here is kind of slacking. They're kind of dropping the ball right there. And I'm going to have to have a tough conversation around that because I'm going to need, okay, where might I be wrong on that? Where might I be missing the boat on this, right? Mm -hmm. So I try to take a look at it from a calendar standpoint or an interest standpoint. If I'm diving in, you know, I try to translate Hebrew scriptures and and challenge my own spiritual beliefs. And like, I just always take a look at something and go, where may I be missing the boat? It's just my way of maintaining curiosity, but it's also a humbling experience sometimes because very often I'm like, oh yeah, I was wrong (laughs) again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, again, I'm wrong all the time, but I'm curious enough to ask the question. And then I'd like to think I'm brave enough to where if I find out I'm wrong and there is better evidence to the contrary, that I'll go ahead and shift my belief, whatever that current belief is in that regard. And that's education in action. What I just heard. That's all it is. I love that. What's one of the best pieces of advice maybe somebody's shared with you? Is there anything that comes to mind? That man, this this advice they shared with me was just it was golden. It's a really good question. I mean, I have I have so many things that I consider advice, but what it is, it's quotes that I've read, it's things that I've right, like you know, quotes that I'm ruminating on right now. One that I'm ruminating on is from Adam Grant, and he says, "Learning is how you evolve. Unlearning is how you keep up as the world evolves." Right. And I, and I really, really like that. I'm kind of ruminating on that one right now. So I always have something, but that question advice, I'm trying to think of something somebody said. And the thing that comes to mind right now is, is somebody said to me, you know, people don't usually fail because they can't do something. They fail because they quit too early. Uh, and life is often a game of just outlasting everybody else at doing the right thing. So good. Yeah, really, really good. And so uh, shout out to some of your listeners, man, who Frank Grillo is an actor. And, and that was something that he said to me that hit home. And I've, I've held on to that one. That's great. It's so true. There's so many starters in, in any area of life. There's very few finishers. And it's the grit and the consistency every time I feel like that separates. I mean, whether it's great marriages, great businesses, great fitness, you, you name it. It's, it's that what you just mentioned there. It's awesome. What's one book, Matt, that you might recommend for our Life's Hard Succeed Anyway listeners? From a practicality standpoint, if you have not read it, Atomic Habits for me is one of the biggest game changers in anybody's life if you'll get in there and really dive in and put stuff into play. So Atomic Habits, many of your listeners have probably read it. If not, I highly recommend it. From more of a philosophical standpoint, I don't care what your faith is. There is a book from Napoleon Hill. Most people know Think and Grow Rich. But his best work, in my opinion, was called Outwitting the Devil. I highly, highly, highly recommend that because it's really a piece on human psychology. I'm an avid reader, so I will have a hard time just giving you one. So Atomic Habits, if you haven't read it, do it. Outwitting the Devil, if you haven't read it, do it. But if you want something else that you maybe never heard of, The Alter Ego Effect by my friend Todd Herman is something I highly, highly recommend, especially if you're an entrepreneur. Good stuff. Love it. What would you say is your definition of success, Matt? It's one of my favorite questions. Everybody has a slightly different definition of it, but have you thought much about that? Like how you define success? Yeah, it's, we kind of mentioned it earlier, right? It's, it's do what I want to do when I want to do it with who I want to do it with and be at peace throughout that entire thing. That's really what it is for me. I'm very big on optimizing everything. So 
that is optimization because I'm a piece of the whole thing. It means I'm healthy. It means I've got the finances in order. It means, I, it means I have everything else in order. So for me, that's it. So are you living a successful life today by that definition? Extraordinary of freaking narrowly. I love it. And I'll, I'll throw you, I don't know if it's a curveball or not, but when did you start living a successful life by that definition? Yeah, by that definition, about 18 months ago. Okay. There were a few pieces that I felt like I still had not figured out how to optimize. You know, I was an entrepreneur. I didn't have anybody that I answered to in terms of like a boss kind of thing, but I still didn't feel like I had the ultimate amount of sovereignty because I was like, well, I'm still relying on the government for certain things. I'm still paying an exorbitant amount of taxes. I'm still doing, I need to figure out these pieces because this is where I feel like I'm handcuffed. And those are the things that I really wrapped my head around and took action against. So, you know, we're at this point too, where when I say sovereignty, meaning like the world could go to proverbial hell in a handbasket and my family is going to be fine. We're taken care of. We're self-sufficient in a lot of ways. I feel like that's 18 months ago. Yeah, man, this is awesome. What excites you about the future, Matt, when you're thinking about the future now? You know, on a personal standpoint, just watching my young heroes continue to figure out who they are and the amount of self-awareness they have at their age versus, you know, I mean, they're so much freaking cooler than I was when I was twice of each of their age, you know? So yeah, watching that from a personal standpoint, nothing better watching my wife really in her element where you know even today we're talking as we're out processing you know animals in our processing facility here on the farm she's just like this is it like this is what i'm supposed to be doing is running this kind of like dude that's freaking fantastic so all that's extraordinarily exciting obviously from a business standpoint you know what tim and i are building with apogee is i think something that this country has needed for for a while we've got a at least 100 campuses, 100 school campuses will be launching uh, in the fall of 2024. And so we're working with people to get those up and running right now, too. And it's going to be something that's going to make a hell of an impact. So very excited about that, too. What states are those 100 planned for? All of them. All states? All 50? All of them, yeah. Okay. And we'll be in Canada, too. And it and, uh, looks like we're going to be in Australia as well. But yeah, all of them. Man, that is exciting. A lot of exciting things you just mentioned. I can see why you are excited about the future, Matt. What's the best way for our listeners to connect with you, follow along on your journey, stay in touch with you? I appreciate that, man. If people want to follow along, so it's two separate questions, right? Yeah. Probably most active on Instagram at just my name, Matt Baudreau. I'm on most platforms other than TikTok, just at that name. You can also follow along on IG at Apogee Program, um, and we'll be posting everything that we're doing with Apogee there. But if people really want to connect and if they have questions, or if there's any way that I can serve and any way that I can help, email me, matt at apogeestrong.com. I'm glad to answer questions. I'm glad to help. It may take me a few days to get back, but I will always get back to people and, and serve any way that I can. Appreciate that, Matt. And I'll give you the last word. Any closing comment you might want to share with our Life's Hard Succeed Anyway listeners today? I appreciate that, man. Don't live in fear. Most people do. And that's that's really been the thing that I've seen and noticed in, in all my years of education is that most people are living in fear and they're afraid of something they don't necessarily have to be afraid of. So take the time to get your thoughts, like get the thoughts out of your head and let's get them on paper. Let's let's make them objective. Let's dive into thinking about your thinking and realize that, you know, we are not the factory setting is not to live in fear. So be brave enough to dissect whatever that story is that you're telling yourself and move forward accordingly. I love it. Matt, thank you so much for your time. This has been awesome, brother. Honor's been my own, sir. If you love this podcast, grab some of Alan's free resources on his website at alanblaine.com. 
spelled A-L-L-A-N-B-L-A-I-N.com. You can also find links to Alan's Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok there in his contacts page. Lastly, if you can leave a five-star review for us on your favorite podcast app, that will get these messages out to more people and it will really mean the world to us. Thanks in advance and make it a great day.